Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing wonderful today, Tim. I'm excited about this conversation because we made a new friend. He's an amazing filmmaker. And also, hey, the weather's getting better and things are looking up in life. So can't complain. And in this episode, we speak to a guy named Andrew Gold, who's got a new podcast. His podcast is called On the Edge with Andrew Gold. And we saw a documentary that he produced and was in, and uh, it's about 41 minutes. It's called Exorcism, The Battle for Young Minds, and it is really excellent. It is about a priest, Padre Manuel, who is a little shady, potentially. What do you think, Lance? The one thing that uh, stands out to me about the documentary, and everyone needs to see this documentary, again, it's called Exorcism, The Battle for Young Minds, it comes in at a nice tight, like, 42 minutes. You know, it's under 45 minutes, so you can watch it in an afternoon. You can watch it, you know, in in the evening. You know it's not going to take up a lot of your time, and you know it's nice and lean, and everything is a what's-next moment because Andrew throws himself into the situation with this self-proclaimed exorcist, and he explores the relationship that the exorcist has with the community and with the people who are helping him, who work for him in his church. And the more he uncovers, the more delicate the situation becomes, sort of out of Andrew's hands a little bit. As amazing as the pace goes on for 30 minutes, the last 12 minutes or so is unlike any documentary I've seen in a while. Just a handful of documentaries have an ending like this one. It's a really great documentary, and uh, we tweeted out a link on Monday of this week, and uh, we'll try to uh, forward it out again, maybe on Facebook, but uh, you really should check it out because uh, we talk about it a lot in this in this interview and you'll get, you'll understand what the documentary is about, but you really want to see it um, to fully grasp uh, all the elements at play here in this interview, because we're not really talking about ghosts here or demons, Lance, are we? No, no. And we're not saying anyone is guilty or innocent of fraud or extortion or anything. We're just talking about the pliability or, or the malleability of, of, of vulnerable people and how someone can take advantage of that and sort of blur the line between religion and mental health. And and you have Andrew pushing that line and trying to talk to these people and trying to get into their circle to find out, like, is this legit or is it just sort of smoke and mirrors and, and you know, money is being exchanged and people are profiting off of the vulnerable in a community that doesn't really have a lot of resources in the first place. And to see somebody like this self-proclaimed exorcist taking what limited resources these people have for something that might be considered a bit of quackery is is really fascinating. But again, Andrew's dive into it is is really and his transition is really one of one of the more fascinating parts to this. Absolutely. So check out the documentary. There's a link in the show notes and check out his podcast on the edge with Andrew Gold. There's a link in the show notes for that as well. Or you can go to andrewgoldpodcast.com. 
And Lance, we've got a new show that we need to tell our lovely listeners about. It's a comedy from Crawl Space Media. It's called Dragging the Dead, and it premiered last week. Yes, Dragging the Dead premiered on April Fool's Day. It was not an April Fool's joke, but the show itself did contain many jokes. Uh, some of them were incredible crowd pleasers and some of them might have fallen a bit flat but that's okay we're workshopping the whole thing we really appreciate the feedback that we've gotten so far we essentially take three historical figures myself you and our partner in crime jennifer amell we take these historical figures some of them are kind of quite obviously uh bad characters in the past some of them are quite obviously not bad characters, but we drag them. We speak ill of the dead, as they say, and it's all in good fun, and it's a bit of a history lesson, if you will. It sure is. It's a, it's a great show, Lance, and uh, I hope everyone checks it out. So follow the links in the show notes, and check out all of Crawlspace Media's shows at crawlspace-media.com. We get some other new ones coming soon, too. Okay, everybody, thanks a lot for listening. Follow us on Twitter at crawlspacepod. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew Gold. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. Pretty good. How are you guys doing? Really can't complain. Um, before we started recording, we thanked you for reaching out to us, and we also said that it was good to see you alive in person because <laughs> the uh, circumstances and the situations that you got yourself into over the course of making your documentary, which we'll get into later on, um, left me with a sense of... Uh, anxiety before we had this interview uh watching that and saying like okay well i just need to know that this person is still doing well so good to see you and good to know that you're doing well yeah well i've never really done you know that well uh you know in terms of <laughs> happiness health uh but i'm okay you know you get by day by day don't you it's just sort of you know an endless uh endless bit of life i don't know what i'm talking about but yeah go on <laughs> well yeah you're you're uh describing a sense of potential meaningless uh, of life. And, uh, I, you know, <laughs> during this pandemic, I think we've all been there ex exploring that a little bit in our own uh, minds, maybe. Um, but your documentary uh, definitely kind of brings that topic up again. Um, but before we get into that, I do want to ask about your background and about your podcast. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I am British. I'm from a little suburb uh, of London called Watford. Uh, some because you get some like soccer fans in the States sometimes and there's a team called Watford and they play in yellow so some people might know them so I grew up I became a journalist I worked at a horrible newspaper called The Sun which is like a real tabloid kind of thing you know really uh, you know horrible and I was actually responsible there because they had this thing called the page three girl uh, the page three girl was this you know very out of date outdated I suppose um, topless woman and she used to have like puns and stuff about the news. So it would be like you see the topless woman and then she this thing called news in briefs because news in brief being like a brief bit of news, but briefs being like a British word for boxers, shorts and stuff. I don't know. And she would say something about the news. Anyway, I was responsible for putting her up on the iPad uh, because there was like a 360 degree version of her that you could sort of twist around. And obviously that was, it goes without saying, you know, a horrible job to be doing. I mean, it was just, I hated it. And that's, I mean, I was obviously also responsible for journalism stuff, but I just thought I got to, I got to do something in my life. You know, this is awful, you know, and it, awful for them as well. They don't do that anymore. They've actually got, I think they've gotten rid of the page three girl because it's so out of date and just a horrible, really sexist. But at that point I had a bit of an existential crisis and I was like, right, I'm getting out of here. And I'd already lived in France for a three, few years and I'd learned French and I got really fascinated with languages. So uh, I went, I thought, what's the next language to learn after French, but something that's really far away from everything I know. And I sort of uh, almost almost looked at a map and pointed and, and got to Medellin in Colombia, where Escobar was from. Um, and I thought, okay, I'm going to get into making documentaries and stuff. This is like Escobar territory. That's going to be cool. And it didn't quite happen for whatever reason in Colombia. But then I moved down to Argentina was there for six years that's why I made this exorcism film and then Brazil and then Germany and I picked up all these languages and I loved it and long story short I yeah I wanted to keep making documentaries and then lockdown came so I made this podcast on the edge with Andrew Gold where I had just like all these people I'd been looking at for years and years uh you know a psychopath for example I was going to maybe make a documentary about her um or a you know somebody who came from a religious cult 
um, a, a guy who, um, the coffin confessor, he's one of my favorites. He goes to people's funerals and, uh, and tells, them, uh, tells them secrets about the dead person um, at the funeral. The dead person before dying had employed him to do so. So like turn up and say, you know, he was gay and his lover is in the crowd here today. Like at a biker's funeral, he did that. So those kinds of stories, I love them. And I just thought I've got to find sort of the weirdest, strangest and most sort of profound and different and weird people and just chat with them every week. And that's that's the essence of the podcast. Well, it is appropriately named On the Edge with Andrew Gold. Um, you do venture into these topics that are very on the fringe, on the edge. You you don't shy away from it. Your first episode, I think, if I'm if I'm looking at this right, your first episode was uh, about the West ba- Westboro yeah. Baptist Church. Which, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna jump into something, <laughs> and it's gonna be of this genre, you might as well go right for the right for the gold on it. Um, no pun intended. Yeah. But um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was that like? I, we really do want to talk about the Exorcism documentary, but there's so yeah. much going on uh, with yeah. your with your podcast as well. What was that like exploring? the Westboro Baptist Church. The podcast is the thing that makes me money and stuff. The documentary didn't get me anything. So if anything, I would insist that your, your listeners don't watch the documentary. <laughs> no, do do watch it. It's, it's, it's good and everything. The BBC basically took that document. I'll talk about that later, but they just didn't really give me any money for it. It was mad. They, didn't, they were just like, well, we'll have it, and that's it. But uh, <laughs> Oh, okay. So, yeah, I know, I know. They, they sort of took it begrudgingly. It was a really strange one. They don't often do uh, foreign stuff. It's usually stuff, as probably in the States as well, I imagine, in Britain, they, they, most people want to see stuff about Britain. They want to see, or, or at a push, about America or Australia or something. They're not that interested in what's going on in Argentina. So, you know, fair enough. So the podcast is really, you know, I'd, hey, if you want, we do the, we could talk about that for hours. I, I love the podcast. Westboro, yeah, well, that was Nate Phelps. So he was the son of the founder. Uh, and I was just really interested in, I'd seen a few documentaries about them, of course. I mean, everyone has. They're just so, so out there. And he was really interesting because I just wanted to know about sort of trauma and everything, given that he was now out of of the clan, um, so to speak, and his his dad abused him. And what's really interesting, I'd seen, do you know Louis Theroux, Louis Theroux, journalist in the UK? So he made three documentaries where he went back to see them. In, and, and the thing that didn't really come across was, it was funny because they're almost seen as cartoon characters. There's, it's almost like... And I'm sure you found this as well, right? You end up arguing. If you argue with someone about politics or whatever, it tends to be somebody who's got very similar views to you, but a slight difference. Like everybody argues with like, what, we're both left wing, but you have slightly different views about whether a woman is a, or this or that. You know, and meanwhile, Nazis are just walking around and we're all just like, yeah, we'll let them do what they want. Because they're so far from us, the Westbrook Baptist Church, it almost became sort of funny. They were like a sideshow, ridiculous thing. She's quite funny, Shirley, the daughter, uh, she's actually witty and funny and horrible. The mo- you know, absolutely horrible, the things she says. But you've, I was watching these documentaries and I think you're so, almost supposed to laugh. Um, what, we did, what you don't see as much of is that, uh, aside from the horrible things they do at people's funerals, that if, for anyone who doesn't know, they picket funerals, usually of, of US soldiers with homophobic slurs on their, on their um, what do you call them, signs. Uh, really horrible stuff. And it, if you're thinking, where's the logic in that? There's none. There's no logic about soldiers and, and homosexual. It makes no sense. But but yeah, I was really interested in how sort of they they got beaten a lot, you know, the kids. And this this guy, Nate, was beaten within an inch of his life many times over as a child. Uh, and that's the side we didn't see as much of in the documentaries that I happened to have seen. And it was like, wow, he really went through it, just beaten and beaten and beaten until he escaped. And he talks about like what it was like escaping that night uh, hoping not to get caught, and then, and then the thing is, you don't just leave and then suddenly become not homophobic anymore and liberal and this and that, you know. So he left and, and kept those views with him for quite some time, and still found himself being very hostile to gay people and that kind of thing. So it was really interesting looking at the subtlety of, you know, the way he gradually moved away from it, and, and now he speaks out. You know, he, he gives uh, speeches, um, you know, out against homophobia and that kind of thing. So he really came full circle, and he was he was. Yeah, I was really lucky to get him as like my first ever episode. It was like a great start. So I loved that. It's incredible because you have somebody who literally was born into it, right? And now they've come full circle, like you said. I I, I mean, I, I have strong beliefs on certain things and I can't imagine 
uh, none of them are are within the realm of of that though you know but i it i can't imagine what it takes to come full circle and and realize what you believed in before is just isn't right it's not humane and you've been wrong and there's no other way to put it you've been wrong the entire time and you've been you've been punished for uh for speaking out by your own family you know that's incredible what was that like talking to him were you nervous going into that yeah, I was really nervous, more than anything, because it was my first podcast, you know. And as you guys will probably remember yourselves, you know, the first time you do it, I guess it may be different if it's the two of you, but like from on my own, I'm just sitting here in my room and my girlfriend was like, what are you doing? And I've got like, even now I've got this laptop set up on top of a couple of shoe boxes uh, <laughs> with like a really crappy light behind it. <laughs> so, you know, so I'm sitting there waiting for Nate Phelps and he was usually people on time but he was like 40 minutes late or something so I'm like sweating and like, oh my god Nate Phelps isn't coming and my whole podcast idea is rubbish and my girlfriend's going just stay calm and all that stuff yeah it was nerve-wracking and he's got this great voice and it's a type of voice that that you guys will be a bit more used to and I know you guys sometimes maybe exoticize our voices in Britain like hello British voice <laughs> we, we can do the same with you guys sometimes especially that sort of deep uh, and he's got like almost he's not from texas is he but he sounds texan to me to my ears like how are you doing You're, this kind of thing and I'm, so i'm like whoa you know really slow talker which i which i like opposite of me you know but he's slow and he considers what, what he's saying and every one of the questions i asked him i really wanted to get into it and, and when you're dealing with someone like a westbrook baptist guy i guess you want you know he's been interviewed a million times you want to ask him something maybe he hasn't been at, you know, and you flatter yourself with the idea that he might not have been asked the questions you asked, but of course he has. But I said, you know, do you see much of your father in yourself? Because you guys will probably attest to this. There are loads of things that your parents do that drive us crazy. And then you get older and you're like, oh God, I'm doing it. I can't believe I'm doing what my dad or my mom or, you know, and, and that's okay most of the time. But when your dad is the founder of the Westbrook Baptist Church, you know, a horrific person, and he said, yeah, he, he, and he really thought about it, you know. He, he gave it the time, and he went, yeah, yeah, I do. You know, every day I think about that. Um, so great. And, 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 you know, you hit on something about the beliefs and coming full circle. I think if I were to rename the podcast, it would be something to do with beliefs, which unfortunately sounds too religious for what it is. But I'm fascinated by the idea of, like, how we change, how we think as we age, how we are so sure that we're right about everything. So I guess each episode I want to surprise people with, with the way they think, and we had a guy just last week who, who wrote a book called The Intelligence Trap. And he talks about how the cleverest people in the world are the ones who make the biggest mistakes all the time. Because you're so smart, you're able to convince yourself with really realistic narratives uh, about whatever you happen to believe. And he gave these examples about, like, for example, the, the guy who, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, incredibly smart guy, like ridiculously smart. He invented, you know, Sherlock the master of deduction who can deduce anything. And he believed in fairies, right? Uh, and so he fell for this like prank that these like 15-year-old girls did where they put up a picture of like some fairies and they'd actually put pins through their stomachs. Like, it was like little cardboard fairies. And he deduced that the pins were belly buttons and it was evidence that fairies gave birth. And he was so, so into that that he fell out with his best friend Houdini over that. Because Houdini, being a magician, was aware of all the tricks and stuff. And Arthur Conan Doyle then got his wife, who was, who was a medium and spoke to spirits and ghosts and stuff, uh, to do like a seance or whatever on Houdini's mum. And so Houdini was like, oh, all right, okay. Because so, his mum had recently died. So then they, they got together and did it. And they, you know, they were saying all this sort of Christian stuff, like, oh, she's with Jesus now and all this stuff. And Houdini afterwards was like, guys, my mom was Jewish. Like, she didn't believe in Jesus and that. And that was like, they fell out. They didn't talk again after that. <laughs> okay, wow. Yeah, I really love the uh, the theme you go with in these episodes. It's really interesting. It's kind of uh, some some kind of mental trap or trick that people play on themselves, it almost seems like. And and you recently spoke with Jesse Morton, who we've had on on our airwaves too. Um, Jesse, uh, of course, uh, is the co-host of Escape Hate on the Crawl Space Network, and he has this this moment in his past where he was prisoned and uh, because he threatened the South Park creators, um, which is a crazy story. 
Yeah. And, and a perfect example of the intelligence trap. And I remember you guys described him as well as like the cleverest guy you've ever met or something. Uh, I think that was you guys. And, and I, I felt exactly the same way. I was like, my mind was being blown. And I was also worried about the listeners because I'm thinking like, oh, oh what? <laughs> you must have that. I guess I'm doing, I'm talking so far. But I wanted to slow him down and go like, okay, but tell me about the pain. Tell me about the trauma. <laughs> and every time I do that, he'll like do, a, he'll do like three seconds on his individual pain or trauma and then do the macrocosm of like, and this is the problem with the whole of society. And I'm like, no, no, but how does it feel when your mother does this to you? But he, he's the intelligence trap. And, and so I made sure those, those episodes were back to back. And so I could speak to him about it and say, but you were so smart. How can this happen? And he said exactly what this guy, David Robson, had said about the intelligence trap of like, I was able to convince myself of these things because he was smart enough to do that. So it's scary the the places our minds can go. I guess we should all and we you know we don't we should all try and and think whenever possible I might be wrong. I think we'd all get on better if we did that. But ironically the book says the people who do that the least are the ones who believe they do that the most. So it's impossible. <laughs> That's interesting. I I say it all the time when we're talking about uh Jesse Morton's uh interview he he had said that he had heard george w bush say you're either with the terrorists or or you're with us and i mean that blew my mind out of everything that he said and i've said this a hundred times of everything that he said during that interview that blew my mind because i remember that moment and i remember there being no choice in my head like well i'm not a terrorist you know so i have to support my country however i can and uh and, and i never considered until until that moment that there was someone like Jesse who thought, well, I'm disenfranchised with my government, so I guess I'm a terrorist. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and I never thought about the other side to that. Like it, it it's, you know, I I I, I'm not I'm not like super old, but I'm old enough to where that is almost embarrassing to me that I didn't have that I didn't never experienced it until <laughs> two months ago or whenever we interviewed him. It's embarrassing to me too, actually. Well, also the <laughs> it's it's so complicated, isn't it? And a, a friend of my, I'm you know p- politically, I'm not very political myself, but I have people who are like slightly left or slightly right. Never really people who, well, I guess, if they're extremists, then they they're part of the extreme side. And like any extremist I have on would be like a reformed extremist, really. And that's the interesting thing. I don't know if you find this as well as a podcaster. The documentaries I make, you can sort of do documentaries about really extreme people like the exorcist guy because you go and investigate him over a series of weeks and months and sort of point out his hypocrisies and stuff. You don't have someone on to a podcast for like an hour long chat. Let's say I had a flat earther on, right? And can we, we probably, you guys don't believe in flat earth theory. I don't want to offend people. No. No, no. but, but my, my <laughs> mind was blown when you told me that fairies don't exist so i'm still recovering from that <laughs> yeah we'll get through that one well let's say you got a flat earther on right i mean again a lot of these people as per jesse morton are super bright right they're really clever and if i had one of those guys on he'd probably walk the floor with me i would look ridiculous because he would have so many more facts than i have they're not real facts you know they're half made up they're twisted and turned but i don't have the expertise and i think it would be dangerous for me to platform those people and and lose the argument and what's the point you know hey have you ever used cheapo air for years and i really like it with cheapo air you can book online use their app or even over the phone they've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations they're my go-to for travel planning and if you join their club miles program you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel book on the app and you get double points Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. 
book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Yeah, let, let's talk about your fantastic documentary, Exorcism, The Battle for Young Minds. And uh, so this takes place in Argentina, and you visited a, a priest named Padre Manuel. And uh, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about this documentary? Mm, yes. So it was a, it's a little bit of a British style, right, in some ways, but you do have this kind of documentary of like Michael Moore. Um, and then there was the, the, the New Zealand guy, David Farrier, did it on uh, Netflix for Dark Tourist, which is this thing when you've got an on-screen presenter or a host, a journalist who's on screen and is obviously Michael Moore's a much more political version. So, so you know, I'm not political in that sense. So it's just going on and you... You do something that I'm not. I'm not entirely proud of now. Actually, looking back, but you sort of uh, you nudge people in a way when you're making fun of them and they don't know you're making fun of them and that kind of thing. It, uh, in, in a in a way to sort of gradually expose what they're doing, which might be uh, morally reprehensible. And this particular exorcist, I'd been living in Argentina for a while. Uh, I was there for six years in total, um, and I'm not religious at all. If people are totally fine, whatever. Um, but I. I noticed they had these shows on TV, which again, you guys have those and we don't have them in Britain. So for me, it was like really exciting to see when you've got like these religious preacher kind of things on TV and and he would come on to all these shows and like often like primetime, uh, you know, shows being interviewed alongside actors and celebrities and things. And he would do a little trick or say a little thing like uh, today, you're all going to be fine because of the horoscope and all this. Uh, here's a trick for you all. And everyone loved it. So he was used to getting very, very good press and nobody bothering him. Argentina has quite a high uh, religious, you know, uh, percentage of people, usually Catholic. Although this particular exorcist was Lutheran, uh, but he was like a he was like a renegade. I don't, I don't think he really belonged to any dom- denomination. And I just thought it, it just it wound me up. It really annoyed me watching him on TV sort of get away with this because I thought there's something about him. And as you're, you've seen, there's something about his face. <laughs> you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but he has that real sort of smirky face. And I thought there's something there. I tried to sell it to the BBC, the idea. I'd worked a little bit with like some HBO stuff and documentary. I hadn't worked with the BBC before. And they just looked at it for a while and they were like, no, 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 because not that interested in Argentina. A lot of it's in Spanish. Um, although, of course, the voiceovers are in English. Uh, they didn't want to do it. And so like a few months went by and I was like, no, nah, I've got I've got to do this. I've got to do this. So I got a friend to come out to Argentina who who's a, a fantastic director and cameraman uh, called David Hayes. And he's just a very good friend of mine as well. And we decided we would just go down and just film with him for like a month or two. Uh, like three or four times a week, just hang out at the church with him, meet all the people getting exercised, see people being, all that stuff, and gradually uncover what he was really doing. And it, it started to emerge uh, that it that it appeared as though he was taking people, usually women, out of psychiatric wards, people who had like schizophrenia and uh, bulimia and other mental health issues, and telling them that, no, you, you're not ill, you have a demon inside you, and I'm going to get it out of you. And then some of these women were sort of hangers, like they became hangers-on in the church, a particular one woman called Paula, who also went by, by Laura sometimes, uh, who was like his right-hand man, and we, we sort of found out goes on holidays and things with him and sort of seems to live with him in the church. And that stuff was all a bit, yeah, a bit iffy for a priest. And when he realized I was asking questions, he didn't take to it very well yeah so yeah so much to talk about there um (laughs) yeah first can we just address uh you you said you were a little ashamed about that strategy uh or that Mm. style where you kind of um sort of get people to admit things that aren't really in their best interest um that was really casually and brilliantly done i would say we have uh (laughs) several examples i thought they were they were all great actually and i think one of them was when padre manuel sort of casually admitted he believed in vampires Uh um (laughs) <laughs> and also he didn't dispute uh when you said oh why why isn't she uh her face turning green and she's uh you know like the movie and she's wa- and she's floating or walking on the ceiling and he's like oh well i have seen levitation once 
Uh, so and he didn't dispute the turning green. So th- that was really well done. So don't be ashamed of that. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think you could have gotten the information had you gone about it a different way. I think it would have come across as being way too uh, aggressive and they would have backed off a lot sooner. Um, but to engage somebody in a conversation about uh, the exorcist while they're doing an ex or while they're involved in exorcism or, you know, the guy who is a fan of Ghostbusters and yes. you're casually yeah. saying, um, <laughs> did you did you want to do this before or after you saw Ghostbusters? You know, I mean, it's 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 funny, but at the same time, I don't know if that message. I mean, even even the holy water joke, like when you when you sip the holy water. Yeah. And you made it look like, but it was so quick. I don't think that your message would have been as well conveyed had you not had that approach. Because I think mm-hmm. a more aggressive approach would have just made you look aggressive and and maybe mean. Because ultimately these people seem to find some sort of happiness after having a, quote, exorcism. And, and some yeah. people out there might actually think, well, what's it to anybody if this person, if, they, if now they're better? But yeah. You nailed on you, you hit on something with the relationship he has with with Paula and yeah. where is this money going? So there is something nefarious uh seemingly there. Yeah. And and which which is an important distinction because obviously he's the one yeah that we're sort of accusing. And when this came out the BBC are very very careful with uh stuff like lawsuits and everything. So their lawyers made us you know draft a, a whole document with something something like 13 separate accusations. Uh, that we had made about the exorcist you know I, I never realized we made any accusations you know you're making a documentary you don't think about it you're just like asking him questions and sort of in, in um, implying things um, but we we had to say you know when it was all written out like that uh, right you've taken this girl to be with you you told this one that you kept this one away from medical help all that stuff um, and he was livid he was you know he was really not happy about that but but the the joke about the the, the holy water and for those who haven't seen it, I just I take a, I ask a woman who who I, you know she's more of a victim I suppose of his charm in my mind, so I don't want to make fun of her too much you know for believing in something I don't believe in you know I don't want to look down on her, and it was really important to me that when I did that I, I took a sip and then pretended I was like you know dying from it or something like that. It was important to me that she laughed as well, and we were laughing together, Eve, despite different beliefs. It was like a laughter that brought us together because whether you believe in ghosts and stuff uh, or, or the 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 holy spirit or whatever or whether you don't the idea of like you know it's burning my throat because it's holy water is funny to both people um and i think you're right i'm in two minds about it if i was going to make the film again i would do the same thing of making fun of him about his belief in ghosts and i'm pushing right at the beginning how far can i push that was my way it was it was like one of the first days maybe the first day i met him and it was my way of sort of gauging how far am i going to be able to push this guy without him exploding and i didn't want i saw you know I admit that I did want him to potentially explode at the end, but not the way he did. I I wanted to be in control of it. I wanted to be the guy who maybe weeks after that sat him down in a room and said, look, this is what I believe about you. These are the things I think. And then he might have exploded and we would have had an argument. He got there first in the end. And it was very unsettling for me. (laughs) He got there first because of a lie, first of all. Yeah, the yeah. from that tabloid journal- journalist. But you mentioned a word there, and this isn't really a question; it's more of an observation. You mentioned a word uh, that you wanted to get there before he exploded, and when your documentary started, all of these words started to like pop out in my head. So I wrote them down. Just a list of some of the words that stood out to me. And this is not a question; just sort of a commentary. <laughs> Vanity, violent, explosive, combative, battle, desperate. Those were the words within the first third. That I was like, these these are sort certain themes that are that that are uh, being portrayed, and none of them were positive. And it, and it wasn't your filmmaking. It, it, well, it was your filmmaking, but it, was it wasn't. A <laughs> that's, that, that's a criticism that could be labeled. A lot of people on YouTube, you know, they are they, they are this journalist closed minded going in here. He knew from the start, but you know this stuff. You know, so there was no, no. This was these were all for the most part. These were words that other people had said to you or were saying in front of your camera. I mean, I mean, they're they're talking about how his sermons or his exorcisms would become uh, explosive. Like he would, he would have this explosive personality and he said himself, I'm, 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 I'm going to battle with Satan. I'm combating him. And there was nothing ever said like, 
well, maybe there was, but it it was overshadowed by everything else. Like, oh, he's he's a kind soul. Like, I, no one from what I saw, like, only after the fact, maybe did he act kind, but there was never the opposite. Yeah, no, the, all people were quoted as saying the opposite. Actually, his workers <laughs> yeah. were saying he's too strict and hard person. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the quotes. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's just again not a question. Just sort of like. I th- maybe a handful of documentaries have made me write down words as I'm watching because I'm just I, I need to follow that thread. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, I mean, I guess I guess, in, you know, the, the, the impoverished districts of Buenos Aires where they live, they don't have much education and stuff. And there's not much in the way of medical stuff. I often ask these people, I can't remember if it's on camera or off, off camera, but the, the ones who went to, who sought his help, um, you know, did you consider therapy? Did you go to a doctor? Have you considered that it's not a demon, but you're depressed? You have depression, you have schizophrenia, you have these things. A lot of the stuff that exorcism is thought, you know, it's, it's diagnosed on things uh, that are, this is the catch-22, the kind of things ex- that you would experience if you had schizophrenia, for example, or, or very extreme OCD. Uh, I've had someone on my podcast with, with very strong OCD, and he talks a lot about intrusive thoughts, and that was that was a key factor. Is intrusive thoughts? They get intrusive thoughts. It must be a demon. Um, and I guess you go to somebody who's going to fight your corner. Uh, you don't necessarily go to someone. It's really interesting. I'm writing a book right now. I won't you know? I'm just at the very beginning. But it's about about the science of secrets and why we keep secrets, who we reveal them to, and that kind of thing. And I found a really interesting thing that we don't reveal secrets to polite people. In fact, we're less likely to, to do so because we believe that polite people are going to maybe judge us and too strictly abide to the law. Um, and, and maybe, you know, if, if you told something to a polite person in the time of the Stasi in, in Germany or in Nazi or whatever, it, I'm in Germany now, so it's on the brain, of course, um, you'd, you'd probably end up killed or something. So we tell stuff to assertive people. So we don't to polite people. So he certainly isn't polite but he's very, very assertive. That's what that battling imagery is. He also might be a psychopath. I wouldn't say he is a psychopath because he might sue me for defamation, not that he understands English anyway. So, <laughs> Well, I will say there are a lot of um, sort of similarities to like a cult lifestyle um, and him kind of having some shades of uh, like a cult leader uh, personality, at least, I would say, right down to um, his uh, coworker, I guess, or assistant or whatever you want to call her, Paul or girlfriend, whatever you want to call her, Paula, as, um, you know, he exercised her demons in a very public viral video years before. And now she works for him unpaid. Uh, as as you notice, seems to live with him, and then they vacation together at the end, which is um, I don't know. It was one of those things like when you at when you asked about the relationship when when they fir- when you first started speaking with her, it was like oh, that seems like there might be something here, but that that came to you. That storyline came to you later in the documentary. Hmm. We we had no idea. We we didn't know she was the same woman as the woman. And it sounds ridiculous looking back. And when we were editing it, my friend David and I, so we ended up doing the whole edit ourselves because we had to finish the film to show it to the BBC and they still wouldn't watch it. And then we had to take it to film festivals, which costs money as well, which we didn't have. And eventually it won some awards. Uh, it won the like, best film in, in Denton, uh, in Dallas. I got to go outside Dallas. I got to go out there, which was great. Um, and only then were the BBC, we got, a, we got a production company called Village of Films, very small company, lovely people who helped to sort of finesse the edit. So she, she's Laura. Laura from the, the YouTube video, which he's, there were like 10 different one versions of it that each have several hundred thousand you know, views, which out there for some guy from the middle of nowhere in a little village is a lot of views. And she just you know, went berserk in this video. And when we were editing it, looking back, she... Um, yeah, she looked different, didn't she? And I mm-hmm. think she she was uh, a lot slimmer in in the intervening years. She had lost a lot of weight. So it was only while I was talking to her, and then she sort of said, "Yeah, that was me from the the video. I was Laura. I'm now Paula, because before my to keep my identity secret." And I was like, "Well, you've just told us what if you're telling everyone, what's the point in changing your name?" But okay, fine. Um, so we had no idea, and that's the, that's one of those great things with documentaries. A lot of my favorite documentaries, and probably for you guys as well, like the best documentaries are those ones where something happens halfway through that's out of the documentary maker's hands, really, and you just continue fil- filming. Maybe making a murderer was a bit like that. So we just got really lucky. It's not it's not about being a good filmmaker or anything like that. It's just like oh oh right, so she's this 
And they seem to be having a very... She's still here after five years? Why is she still here? Where are her parents? Why are they always together? The other guys, the other staff, the clergy seem to be jealous of her. Uh, What's going on here? This isn't right. Not that she was underage, but it's not exactly right for this priest who, again, yeah, vanity and battle and stuff like that that you were saying. The other thing was that he superimposes his face onto posters of, like, The Exorcist, the film, and other films. You know, this is vanity. This is really not what you want from your leader. And and obviously plays the music, the theme music from The Exorcist in his mass. So Absurd. <laughs> yeah, the closer we got to him, the more the more we thought, wow, we've really got something here, you know, more than we'd planned for. We got lucky in that sense. And uh, you mentioned Paula not being underage at, at, at that point where it, seem, it does seem like uh, her and Manuel are in some kind of relationship. But five years before, she was, she was five years younger. So she was a lot closer to that adolescent age. Um, and it seems like a lot of the, the folks that he exercises um, are, like fit that demographic. There, there were two other um, girls that, that are in the documentary, Candela and... Yes, Natalia. And so there seemed to be a connection with an eating disorder. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we went and spoke to a psychiatrist in the end who who had been the psychiatrist of Paola. And and actually what happened during filming was that Paola initially gave us permission to speak to him. She had been basically living in this psychiatric ward for years before she went to The Exorcist. And she gave us permission, written permission, so that he could talk about it. And it was only like the morning of going to speak to the doctor, she called up the doctor and withdrew her permission, which was very frustrating for us, of course, as filmmakers. Oh, God. But it also showed us like, oh, they're getting suspicious of us. Like something had happened in those days and things started to take that turn. It starts, as you saw in the film, very sort of jovial and we're joking about vampires and whatnot. And as it goes on, there's like avoidance and this kind of thing. Um, and but, but we did get to speak to the therapist anyway, who was only able to speak in very vague terms, general terms about, you know, people in general. And he told us about how the exorcist is not the only one like that operating in this way, that it's very frustrating for people, uh, for doctors in Latin America, because they keep all their patients are getting taken away by by different kinds of exorcists and uh, other sort of magic people who, who make all these promises. And he talked about how adolescents is the time, you know, a lot of people have these, of course, lifelong mental illnesses and things like that. But also a lot of us have things in teenage years. I'm sure if even just a cross section of the three of us, there were probably, you know, between the three of us, I bet there were four or five things that when we were 14, 15, 16, we were either very nervous about or maybe became a pathology in some way. I I had very bad obsessive compulsive disorder as an example when I was 16, switching lights on and off all night, blah, blah, blah. And it's, as an adult, I'm a little bit more uh, maybe compulsive or obsessive than a lot of people are. You know, I'll make sure the doors are shut and things like that. But I'm generally okay. As a teenager, that was a difficult time for me to go through. Teenage years are so elastic and so it's 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 a very sensitive time. And a lot of women, uh, particularly in that in that part of the world, uh, are under pressure. You know, to stay thin and that kind of thing. And she had been involved in some sort of online thing called. Uh, Anna, Anna and Mia. Anna stands for anorexia. Mia is the end part of bulimia. Um, and it's some sort of bullying thing, where, which I think is quite common here as, you know, in the UK and the US as well. There's a whole Anna and Mia thing. I haven't looked too much into it, but online you can see uh, there is an Anna and Mia thing. So it's, it's worldwide and it's, you know, thin spiration. It's this whole thing of staying thin. And I think, again, I'm not a professional, I think a lot of mental illnesses are in, are in spectrums and they're in some way interlinked. There's a lot of intrusive thoughts. There's a lot of, I have to do this, I have to do this. You know, that bulimia thing of I have to, you know, stay thin is a similar compulsion to OCD, which is similar to schizophrenia. But if, if you are feeling that way, rather than look at what is very complex, which is okay, there's a patriarchal society in Argentina in particular, there's a lot of pressure to stay thin, there's my friends, there's this, there's that, uh, and I'm going to have to go to years of therapy to have any progress, and I might not have any progress at all ever. They're just being told by some guy, like, no, 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 hey, come along, like, it'll take an hour, Uh, we'll book you in at two o'clock, demon will be gone. And as you touched on before, they feel better afterwards, you know? And it's the same reason you feel better with a lot of different things, and suggestion placebo that kind of thing they they do feel better and it's like who am i to judge except 
a year later, two years later, five years later, it comes back generally because they haven't dealt with the actual issue at heart. They've just they've just got that that injection of like adrenaline from the placebo, and it's te- you know, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better, and then it drops. So complicated. Yeah, and you you were talking about Candela, and that just broke my heart at the end because she seemed so happy. And I don't want to give any spoilers, but she's still around. Like, there's, she hasn't done anything drastic, thankfully. But it, it speaks to this, like, mental illness of, of anorexia and bulimia and the perception of yourself. And that's all internalized, like, the, like, starving yourself or rejecting food um, to make yourself one thing is internal, right? And it's awful. And, and he is a vampire. Uh, there's no question about it. He's he he is a vampire and he is sucking on on this from these people and I mean these the, the, this poor woman has you know has this illness this which needs treatment it needs it it needs therapeutic treatment it needs psychological treatment and he's saying nope that's not it it's a demon it's inside so we need to get it outside of you and we need to and we need to we need to exercise it that is so unfair. And it's like, um, like you said, that that rush of uh, euphoria or adrenaline or endorphins, uh, serotonin, whatever that that hits you when you've gone through that. It's kind of like scream therapy, right? They they're screaming and screaming. Of course, you're going to feel a relief a relief after. Yeah, he was grabbing her wrists too. Yeah, and pushing the cross into her, and you know, like like, like very physical. There's two things like other than uh, other than just like her family dynamic and everything like it was so heartbreaking to see like how happy she was because it's like watching an alcoholic or a drug addict when they're feeling good and they're not using. And then, you know, like if you slip, you're going to slip twice as bad and it's going to be so much worse. And and you just feel like that's inevitable. Well, the other part was like her father. I was her father right right at the end of the exorcism. He could barely look at her. Like he was having a really hard time looking at her. He he eventually came around, but that that was like almost as uncomfortable to me as watching the exorcism itself. Like he he couldn't even he didn't even hug her. You, you had to instigate uh, some physical contact between the two of them. This the whole talk. I mean, the way you describe an exorcism and the demon coming out. I mean, the reason it's confused for these people with mental health and stuff like that because it, it really is the same metaphor. You know, I, I talked before about the intrusive you know, whatever, but it is also, it must feel when you have these illnesses, like you have a demon inside you. So all these things, again, we talk about the intelligence trap. It's a similar thing, isn't it? Your brain is telling you, yeah, it does feel like I've got some heaviness inside me and it's going to be taken out. And the only, well, not the only, there are a lot of things like that. There are a lot of things where, you know, you feel like breathing out, you know, in some ways it's mindfulness and meditation, just let it out, let things out. The scream therapy you mentioned. But what that scene in particular felt like to me was actually a pregnancy, like an old fashioned pregnancy, someone going into labor because she was really going in and she was expelling something from her body and the father was made to wait outside like the old days. And he came in and didn't know where to look and where to act. And she was incredibly vulnerable in that position with lots of people around her, like doctors and things. It felt, and I felt embarrassed to be there because I felt like I was in someone's most vulnerable and sensitive moment, like a pregnancy. Um, And when he came in as well, just seeing that shocked look on his face, it gave me the impression at the time that he didn't believe this stuff and that he was a bit like, oh God, I'm not happy with this. But in fact, later on, we speak to him and he's really sort of, he goes back and forwards and he's sort of, which is like all of us. Like, imagine what you do if you don't have that education and stuff. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way, just that they don't there. They just don't. And they do in Buenos Aires in the, in the center and stuff, but the, in this area, they didn't. Um, and he has no one else to turn to. So all he can see is the facts of like, my daughter is having all these different things. Nobody else has seems to have that because nobody talks about it. You know, I said to her, Candela, what about any of your friends? Have they ever spoken about having similar things? And she was like, no, none of them. Nobody's ever had any of these things except for one, and she had a demon inside her. And, you know, so nobody's discussing it. So he was just at a complete loss, you know, and it's it was very, it was very sad and moving, I guess. And uh, that scene was, was very interesting because you spoke, you asked her mom, Candela's mom, if she had gone to a psychiatrist, and she's like, she's like, we tried, but they don't even believe in demons. 
Um, and that was kind of sad. I also wonder about eating disorders and and her eating disorder. And if, if you don't eat, doesn't that change your mental, like your, you know, the way you feel and think anyway? Like if you, so I, I think there could be some connection there. Um, but also I wonder if she believes it's demons or a demon and the priest believes it's a demon, like what's the difference? And, and it works. What's the difference between it not being a demon or being a demon? Yeah. Well, at first, very little. At first, very little. It's. I think you're probably right. There must be a, a cyclical nature. That I, I again, you know, we we don't know. I don't know any. <laughs> I'm talking like I'm a doctor. I don't know this stuff. But it it must be in some way cyclical that you've got some some roots, uh, depression and bulimia and anxiety, and it's causes you to not eat. And after that, yeah. I mean, how do you have any energy to even get through the day? Um, so, so yeah, on the surface, at first, it, it does work, and it's this, it's this great feeling. And I, I suppose that was the big surprise for us. We hadn't really thought about that so much. Like, wow, these these people were better. No matter how many times you ask them, they're better. But something like bulimia and anorexia doesn't just develop for no reason, I guess. And there must be a central cause. And maybe that is about them not feeling like they're enough. Maybe it's a lack of serotonin in the brain. I Again, I have no idea, but there must be some sort of root cause. And so you can get rid of the symptoms with the placebo effect for six months, or it might last years, depending on how good you are at fooling yourself. But I think until you deal with the actual issues that are causing it, or until you grow out of that you know, very sensitive adolescent phase, it's it's going to come back. There's a very interesting documentary, not documentary, but uh, do you, there's a guy called Darren Brown who's like a magician, and he has a show on Netflix called Miracle, and he goes on stage and he says to the audience, "I'm going to do like a preacher thing, you know, when you come up and I, I'm going to heal anyone who's blind and all this stuff." But he says, "But know this, right? There's no spirits involved. There's no. I don't believe in paranormal and anything like that. Okay, this is. I'm doing this." psychologically and I'm going to tell you I'm doing this and you're still going to feel better and people are sort of laughing and stuff and they go up to the stage and the guy's like I can't like, yeah I'm blind and he's like right blah, blah, blah. okay can you read this and he reads it out and you're like what like amazing and those guys you know he's like a David Blaine kind of guy you know how has he done that and it just shows how amazing the brain is that the sort of placebo stuff and the adrenaline someone's got a bad back they're better look in six months that guy's still got a bad back you know he, he can't sue Darren Brown or something and he uh the guy who was blind probably was only partially blind really you know and the adrenaline got him through it so it's amazing what our minds can do you know uh, yeah exactly uh v- vampires uh not a, not a huge mystery in my head um uh, exorcists uh, kind of a mystery but human beings the greatest mystery in the world. The, their brains, what is going on there? It creates all these mysteries, essentially. Yeah. Every human is the is the hero of their own story, right? We're all the hero of our own narrative. Sometimes we're the victim of our own narrative. It's It feels good to feel like a, you're a victim because somebody, that's Jesse Morton, right? He felt like a victim and the hero of his own narrative. But there was that bit I really liked, just coincidentally, as I was leaving the church for the last time after getting in this big bust up in a room, um, he happened to be preaching to his his, his masses and stuff uh, that the devil was leaving the house or something. And I loved that because I loved that, you know, for everything I've said, you might be on my side, you could be on his side. And if you're on his side, which a lot of people on YouTube are, that I was blinkered, that I didn't give him a chance on all that stuff, then I'm the devil, you know? So that's fascinating to me. It was great. It, it was uh, it was great to hear that um, voiceover over that footage of you leaving with your you know your camera equipment, and um, it was very appropriate because it was making me wonder like, well, who is the devil here? Like, who who is he really even talking <laughs> about? Um, because again, you were put in that position because someone else lied to put you in that position. Yeah. Uh, and they what what's even kind of creepier about that lie is that it was based on truth. So it was almost mm. like they were preemptively saying you said something to get it out in the open so that they could have that conversation when you never directly said anything. So it was like, well, we got to get it out there because he's going to say it. So we got to be preemptive about it. So who actually is the bad guy here? Mm. Um, and and good for you for not as a documentary filmmaker, when someone says those cameras can't roll in here. Good for you and your camera guy for just putting the camera down and, and continuing to roll. And <laughs> he's a moron for giving permission at the end. He was so angry 
and he he mm. he gave permission at the end, saying, "Good, put it out there. Good, I, <laughs> I I want I want people to know that you're in my house of worship." So I'm I'm paraphrasing. Basically, said yeah, like, yeah. "I want people to hear the blasphemy that's happening right now." I was terrifying. We were the back, that end was we terrifying. Were the back yeah, yeah, that last fifteen minutes, there were some sounds going on there where it sounded like chains or something. Like there was something like they're getting picked up, and all I could picture was just like, like, like a bike chain or something. I'm like, they're gonna start whipping these guys. I thought they might. <laughs> well, bells do drive out the devil. We did learn that in the very beginning. <laughs> oh, maybe that's what it was. Yeah, I'm sure they believe a lot of that stuff, you know. And it's just, it, it was very scary. And and when I went into that room, I just hoped that David, my director, was continuing to film. And you never know, you know. I had a thing when I was, uh, I tried to make a film recently about abortion in Argentina. Again, not very politically involved, but I just wanted to see the really different sides. Um, I hung around with a woman who in Argentina is known as the crazy baby lady by the by the pro-choice side. They, you know, they was, and I'm a little bit more that way inclined, but again, everybody can have their views and stuff. Um, but she was very, she's the kind of woman who, she was a little bit like Shirley in the um, Westboro Baptist Church, you know, she was very similar to that, screaming at a lot of people, just going to abortion clinics and screaming at everyone, you're killing, whatever, you know, fine. Um, but I hung around with her and ended up really liking her because she had different political views to me, but she treated me so nicely, uh, took me into her family and stuff like that. So again, it's that thing of like, you know, who's a good person, who's a bad person. Anyway, that, the reason I'm talking about that is because there was a point where we ended up getting like tear gassed and stuff because we were in the wrong place at the wrong time and stuff being thrown at us. And it was a really exciting part of the film. And uh, my camera person, it was a different person and did. It did turn it off for a little bit and I was like running and getting like tear gas all in my face and my eyes it was the only time I've ever had that because I'm not an activist you know I'm just some guy <laughs> and it's all going on my nose it's a horrible thing like tears going on my face and I'm like have you got the camera on and we're like running everyone's running away and like bottles are being splashed splashed and like, you got the camera on like, oh yeah yeah and the person's like okay okay and we got it back on again after a while and I'm so thankful that David in that moment did keep it rolling. Although all we got was was the back of the door because he couldn't come into he couldn't come into the room with me. But I didn't even think at the time my microphone was still running with the audio. Again, you know, th- thank- thankfully because I don't think we'd have a documentary without that scene. And he lost his mind with us. He shouted at us. And there is that guy. There's a guy just before who's very sort of uh, thick-shouldered uh, with white hair, and he's got a big staff like Jafar has in Aladdin. And he's very intimidating. And he was the guy who put his hand on my head at one point to sort of see if I would fall over. I found him very intimidating. And we almost, you know, behind the scenes, David and I would laugh, sort of like, oh, God, don't cross that guy. And when I ended up being in this room and there's one point that David tries to come in and they slam the door shut. They're like, no, you can't come in. Don't you dare. And he's really screaming. And the other thing was in the documentary, of course, because it's it's like an hour long thing or 58. No, was it 40 minutes in the end? I don't know. Yeah, 40. But it, <laughs> so it's a 40 minute TV, you know, uh, time. And, you know, each exorcism, again, in, in, in the documentary is like three minutes. But in real life, they were like an hour, hour and a half. And similarly, in this room, I was there for an hour and a half, which was strange because he was late for his big mass. He has like a big monthly mass. There were thousands of his supporters outside. It's like nearly midnight. We're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, they're quite far from Buenos Aires at this point. It's a dangerous area. It's not somewhere they were used to ever having a couple of British guys there. Um, and I'm locked in this room. He's got his like baying crowd outside. And I think the whole time, like, you know, if he just says the word, they'll all, they'll kill us. Nobody knows where we are, um, really, because we didn't shoot. That was the thing. We didn't go with like the BBC or HBO or whoever it was. It was just me and David. And we had a guy who was like an intern at the time to help with the audio and stuff. And he was Argentine, but a young, he's a kid. He's like 20, a guy called Demian, who we, we wrote in the, in the script as translator because we didn't know what else to say, you know, the assistant, I don't know. Um, so they could have just disposed of us. I mean, that does, it does happen. I mean, it was unlikely, but in that moment, it was one of the few moments in my life where I thought like, what are we going to do if they just decide to kill us? And he shouted and shouted for an hour and a half. And I kept saying like, look, we'll show you the video. By the way, for those who haven't seen it or heard yet, I mean, it, the, the point was that there was another journalist there who was very in with this exorcist. He was like his media outlet. Um, the, the journalist would always sort of cover his exorcisms and stuff. And I think maybe he was jealous that some British crew were getting access to him now as well. I don't know. Uh, but we interviewed him and he was talking about, yeah, we're going to have multiple exorcisms now with like 20 people at once and all this stuff. Next thing I know, I'm being thrown into a room and the exorcist, this guy had, was in there as well, the journalist, and he told 
he was saying that I had told the journalist or asked the journalist why the exorcist Padre Manuel always kisses Paula, the girl that he exercised once, on the lips or on the mouth. And this was an absolute shock to me because we had been chatting again behind the scenes, David and I, like, I bet something's going on there, something's fishy there. But we had never, ever voiced that to anyone, except we did ask a few people, like, so they're quite close, like, you know, what's going, you know, it's obviously an important relationship between them, without ever crossing that boundary. He lost his mind with us. And there, there was, I don't know, yeah, I do remember that sound, I don't remember seeing much in the way of chains and stuff, but I, I can, I've heard it on the documentary. Uh, it was his staff that scared me, the Jafar, the Jafar scarf, staff, and just the amount of them. And maybe I thought, look, okay, maybe I'll get away, but I'm going to get a bit of a beating, you know, teach me a lesson, or whatever it was. And I, yeah, I mean, I thought I was going to die there, but um, we we got out in the end and sort of squirmed out after lots of arguing and stuff. And by that point, the, the church was heaving. You know, I'm talking about 5,000. You know, I've got no idea about numbers, but loads and loads of people as far as I could see. And you couldn't get out of the church. So I'm squeezing past people just with stuff on my back and stuff on David's back and Damien, our friend, you know, trying to get out. And we get out and because uh, David was filming me leave and that was the whole thing. So we get outside and we're like, finally out. Although you're not out of the woods yet because we're still in the middle of nowhere. It's 1 a.m. now, loads of crazy people outside. How are we, even, are we going to get a taxi? There's no taxis in this, you know, really quite dangerous area. And then David says, uh, I, I didn't, I wasn't filming like you leave. We're going to have to go back in and film you leave again. And I was like, no way, no way. We can't do that. And me and Demian are like, no way. And that th- these things happen in every shoot, no matter how good the director is or whatever, it just happens. And so we did. So by this point, obviously, the, the, the exorcist himself was thankfully up on stage doing his mass about how we're the devil and all this stuff and we're squeezing in and out of people through like a side corridor and I don't know if he can see me out the corner of his eye or what and then we had and people are like why are they back here after what had happened and then we get back (laughs) here really squeezing past there were that many people in the church and then spilling out onto the street thousands and then filmed it again of with you know David behind me with his camera and me like looking a bit like oh I'm scared <laughs> and I was scared you know so I didn't have to act fortunately because I'm a terrible actor and uh, yeah we got out and got home and it was only days later when we thought or maybe hours later at least where we realised what we had because in that moment we were terrified my legs were shaking we were in the taxi on the way home and we didn't speak we were all absolutely just I guess we all thought that was it that 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 was the end of our lives quite possibly and we're not the types of intrepid people who are used to that some guys are like you know climbing mountains or whatever they're doing that wasn't us so we were just oh and it was yeah days later we were like what do we have in that audio by the way was the audio still going what's the and we listened back and you can imagine the fun we had shaking listening to it because it brings back the fear it's almost a ptsd i don't want to uh, trivialize people who have real ptsd or whatever but it was almost that feeling of like oh he said that and then i said that and then that and that and uh we thought we've got something because it's not normal for a priest to be screaming at people like that especially when you haven't done anything what we as far as we thought anything wrong the reaction uh, about uh, the relationship between Paula and Manuel was really all that you needed um, to know about it. You know, you didn't even need those photos from their vacation at the end <laughs> together um, because it again it told you everything. Um, just the just the way that they reacted and locked you in the the room like that. Wow. Yeah, and I and I will argue that uh, more effective that the cameraman uh, stayed rolling and was outside <laughs> and the audio was rolling. There's definitely a, that's definitely a point, yeah. Go on. And also more effective that he made you go back in to leave again because I'm sure the first <laughs> time leaving you might have had some like relief on your face that you were getting out. The second time <laughs> leaving, you're like, why the hell am I back here again? So it definitely uh, came through. Like the real yeah. emotions came through. That face behind you, by the way, my face. That is literally that's the moment, and that's why I put it there as my as my podcast uh, cover. Because I just thought I could take a hundred studio photos where I look like all the other podcast people, you know, that kind of smiling thumbs up or whatever I'm doing. Yeah. That is a moment where I've literally it's about 10 seconds after fearing for my life and being shouted at. We're right outside the Exorcist Church. My eyes are a bit watery 
And I just think I'm not going to be able to recapture something. I'm, I'm hoping that it gives the effect that people see it and go, there's something a bit weird about this photo. I'm going to click on this. <laughs> I, I don't know. No, it, it, it's, a, it's really effective because Tim watched the documentary before I did, and he texted me and he goes, uh, it was like his the, the image that he uses on, it was like it looks just like him <laughs> from the documentary. <laughs> it is that. <laughs> I guess that's why. Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.